All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us here today to gather together as your church, as your sheep, as your beloved people, uh, whom you sent your Son to redeem. Thank you that we are saved by his precious blood. Um, We are saved by grace through faith alone. There's nothing we could add to it. Nothing we can do to merit your goodness and love, but that we are granted it purely by your mercy and by your sovereign grace. Thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship together and enjoy our time today in your word. Pray, Lord, that each one here took the time to prepare their hearts, and that they have not do so now, please. Lord, for their sake, that they would be receptive to your word, and that we may grow strengthened by it. We can uh, rest assured, Lord, that your word is sufficient for us, and that it will do the work that you desire it to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles. We will continue our study, our verse-by-verse study in the book of Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, we should be able to close out our study of this second chapter. If not today, then most likely uh, by next Lord's Day. Uh, we don't want to rush through it too quickly, and we want to really understand uh, what Peter is saying. So we've been moving through a little sub-study in chapter 2 that we have titled, Posers, Posers. <laughs> that is remarking on the... Uh, the nature and the character of false prophets, which throughout all of redemptive history have somehow managed to infiltrate the church, not just the New Testament church, but even the Old Testament assembly of Israel, and to really do their worst to wreak damage upon the flock of God, to scatter the sheep as the Lord Jesus describes. And of course, we are not left without recourse We are given abundant resources to stand our ground and to stand guard, to be wise, to be watchful, and to be prepared when that time comes. And we also, we can take heart in the fact that it is often a time of testing. It's often a time of refinement to uh, remind us just where we are without grace, right? Where we are without the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, It's a time to remind us that we rely solely on God and what He has done for us, to rely on His strength and not our own. So in this last portion of chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, we really want to uh, re-emphasize the importance of that. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, I will read to the end of the chapter in verse 22. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So a quick correction on the the sermon title. Last uh, Lord's Day it was Posers of Character, Conduct, Consequence, and Correction. Just exploring really the nature, some of the characteristics of false teachers. And so we come into the final segment. So it's really Posers Part 3. And we're going to break this text down in in, in three subcategories. We would call it of abdication, of arrogance, of apostasy. So those are really the final three things that we want to drive home. Of course, they're not exhaustive. We could probably unpack this this part of the chapter a little more, find more details. But overall, those are the things that really jump out of this text, and I will explain how in a minute. So posers of abdication, of arrogance, and of apostasy. Most of you may be familiar with this military story, and many, many uh, a preacher has used this to illustrate the subversive tactics of false teachers. Um, decades ago, there was a man named Eli Cohen, famous in Israeli history. Biographers say that he was recruited into Israeli military intelligence in 1960. As his, character, as his career progressed, he was given a false identity as a Syrian Arab who was returning to Syria after living in Argentina. To establish this cover, Cohen moved to Argentina in 1961. Early the following year, he moved to Damascus, and for the next few years, he used the alias Kamel Amin Sa'abit, and he gained the confidence of many in the Syrian military as well as government officials. And he sent intelligence to Israel by radio and secret letters and occasionally even by visiting Israel in person, all pretending to work for the Syrian government. His most famous achievement, it is said, was to tour the Syrian fortifications of the Golan Heights. If you're not familiar with the topography and geography, you can look that up later. In 1964, his control was transferred to Mossad as part of an intelligence reorganization. So after Hafiz of Israel became prime minister, Eli was even considered for the position of Syrian deputy minister of defense. So although this part of the story is sometimes, it hasn't been really confirmed, but it has been said that Cohen suggested that eucalyptus trees should be planted around the Syrian military bunkers and mortars on the Golan Heights that were targeting Israel. That way, Cohen argued, the trees would provide natural cover for the outposts so as to prevent soldiers and personnel from suffering the effects of heat stroke. After his suggestion was implemented by the Syrian military, Cohen then passed on the information to Israeli intelligence and then the Israeli Air Force using the newly planted trees as a guide. So, during the Six-Day War, all that had to happen was for those eucalyptus trees to be identified and the Israeli Air Force knew precisely where to drop their bombs. So all of those fortifications installed there by the Syrian military were destroyed. And if you're familiar with the Six-Day 
war at all, um, an early pre-dawn strike secured for Israel the victory against overwhelming military forces and against overwhelming odds. In 1965, hired Soviet experts caught Cohen in the act of sending a radio radio message after large amounts of radio interference brought attention. After a showcase trial, he was found guilty of espionage. Despite many appeals, including one even from Pope Paul VI and the heads of state of France, Belgium, and Canada to persuade the Syrian government to commute his death sentence, he was nonetheless publicly hanged by the Syrian officials on May 18, 1965. But though they did that, the point is the damage had already been done. The subversion had taken place and much destruction was meted out by the Israeli military against the Syrian military. So that just goes to show, with plenty of planning, with plenty of secrecy, with plenty of subversive tactics, the enemy can be undermined. People can slip in and do the damage, and by the time it's even known, it can be too late. Even though the traitor was identified. And so this is just a, say, a significant illustration of what can actually happen within the church if it is not on guard against posers, against the pretenders who come in masquerading to be preachers and teachers of the gospel and exposing them and really setting up fortifications of truth so that subversion and inner turmoil and destruction never takes place to begin with. It's a helpful lesson for us, and there are many more, of course. But in this closing passage of chapter 2, I want to go over some of these things. I think of this as a final warning, a final plea from Peter to the churches to be on guard. Remember, there's, there's, there's something significant about the timelessness of a passage like this, that we are to never fail to be on guard. We are never to grow weary in standing up for the truth. We are never to grow lazy or careless when it comes to learning the truth, taking it in, and discipling others. The truth itself is our defense. It is our bulwark against error. It is our defense against unbelief. And so Peter, in this paragraph, once again exposes the true nature of these false teachers. And so for verse 17, we have called this The abdication portion. Abdication, of course, means to step down from your appointed role. And this often happens with devastating results. To abdicate, we think of a king who has the throne, he has every right to rule, and due to one circumstance or another, he decides to give up his authority. And of course, this is dangerous for the church to do at any time. But when it comes to false teachers, this is where the abdication is going on. And I will explain because it pertains to the role of the teacher. And of course, false teachers come in, they set themselves up as teachers and preachers, and yet they do not maintain faithfulness toward fulfilling that role. And this is what Peter exposes. So let's look at this, how Peter describes them. Verse 17. These are, these are springs with water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. And so, so some, a pretty vivid illustration here, but this is how 
this is how they are described. We think, wow, there's some creativity on the part of Peter to really illustrate the depth of depravity that these false teachers bring into the church. They are springs without water. We know that water is a precious commodity. There's more, obviously more water on this earth than there is actual land. Can't live without water. It can take on many forms. It can penetrate rock. It can put out fires. It can be frozen into ice to cool your drink. But I think most importantly, water quenches thirst. We can live many weeks without food. We can only live a few days without water. Water is essential to life on earth. Think about the context of the Middle East and all of the the deserts in that area. Water would be a most precious commodity. Water would be something you would store up and travel with so you don't run out. And something that travelers in that area of the world would no doubt rely upon would be springs of water. It would be hugely disappointing to come across a spring which was supposed to be gushing forth life-giving water in the middle of the desert in order to be hydrated, to keep dehydration at bay, to stay alive, and suddenly the spring turns out to be dry. It doesn't give forth water, life-sustaining water. And as Peter communicates clearly, this is descriptive of false teachers. They come in, they promise refreshment. That is, that is the calling of the teacher to provide the church, among other things, the refreshment of the Word of God. The life-giving power of the Gospel to preach it clearly and consistently and with great unction and with great authority. And it is right for the flock of God to come into a church and to expect that. To expect that to color every aspect of corporate worship. It should be a welcome thing. And yet, as is described of these false teachers, they are merely mists. Not gushing fountains, but merely mists. Vapor. Water that dries up as quickly as it appears. All the while, these teachers are promising refreshment. Blessing. The food of the Gospel. But what they bring in only evaporates at the first sign of heat. This is paralleled in Jude 1.13 where these people are described as wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, just like last week's sermon. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. This is what they bring. This was a a strong rebuke given by the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Judah. He says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. And what is especially sad and even scandalous about this is no one hews a cistern and finishes with a broken product. Cisterns should break over time, but to start out with something that is dysfunctional and that will not fulfill its design, that will not hold water, is something that brings a lot of shame. 
Cisterns are meant to hold water. They're meant to be that vessel, that large vessel that provides life-giving water. You don't want a broken, dysfunctional cistern, and yet false teachers often behave as such. And note what has happened to the people of Judah in this passage in, in Jeremiah. They become those who due to the influence in their own time forsake the fountain of living waters. They look for something else to refresh other than the Word of God. God, who delivered them from slavery, brought them out of the land of Egypt, He is the fountain of living water. He is the cistern that never runs dry. And yet they reject Him for something that seems at the time more promising. So the same thing is in play in the book of 2 Peter. You have these Preachers who come in and may promise great things, may promise refreshment, and yet they are springs without water. They are empty. They have nothing to offer rather than giving a torrent of rushing water to bring refreshment and to sustain life, they are merely mists. Same thing is going on in Hosea 6, 3 through 4. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain. Like the spring rain, watering the earth. You hear that? Let us come to know the Lord. His going forth. See, there's a certainty to it. That when we turn to the Lord as the sole source of refreshment and sustenance and grace, He does not fail to be true to His Word. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. He will abundantly supply all that we need. But listen to this as the passage goes on. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. So most likely, Peter is drawing from from Hosea 6, verse 4. Your loyalty is like a morning cloud. What happens to morning clouds? Do they stay? No. They burn off as the sun rises. They go away early. The dew evaporates. And evaporated dew is useless dew. But this is what he points out. And it's amazing that the church at any time would continue to seek out teachers of this character who really offer nothing. And note this too, they are are driven by a storm. That is the the calamity that that infiltrates the people of God. It is not the refreshment of a spring rain like the Lord gives. It is a storm. See, it's, it's all a show. You would expect a storm to bring copious amounts of rain, and yet no, just mists. Driven by a storm, and that's all it is. And all it will do is wreak destruction. We are warned by Paul in Ephesians 4.14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed about here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We are not like these men. We are to grow. We are to be a mature man in Christ. And one of the things that means is that we are not driven We're not driven like waves. We are not driven by the storm. We do not come up parched and dry because we have failed to go to God as the fountain of living waters. And ultimately, to Christ, 
Christ is that true fountain. Right? He says, whoever believes in Me, whoever believes in Me, He says, from His innermost being will come forth springs of living water. Christ will never fail to refresh the one who places their faith in Him. But what we have here is a picture of one who does not regard Christ. One who is not pointing the flock of God to the fountain of living waters. One who has abdicated his calling, his position, as one who leads the sheep to the water to be refreshed. And of course, the penalty of this man, of this teacher, is black darkness. I'm not sure what that all entails, but it can't be good. We think of black darkness, a place where there is no light. Jesus warns in the Gospels concerning those who are thrown into out of outer darkness, a symbol of judgment of those who are cut off from the presence of God forever, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so by this, the church is warned. This is, this is the character of those who would lead you astray. There is nothing for them but a reservation of judgment. Do not follow them into that same judgment, he says. It's been reserved, right? It's already been marked out. We've talked about that at length. This judgment has already been marked out. It's already been identified. It's already on the move. It's only a matter of time before these teachers receive their just desserts. And so we are warned, do not go their way. Do not follow them. Do not see them as a resource of truth. For they'll only lead you away from the fountain of living waters. So here's the second one. Concerning arrogance. That is a, that is a characteristic of false teachers that we have not really uh, spoken of in great depth since we started chapter 2. Perhaps highlighted it a little bit, but it's one of the most outstanding and I would say obvious characteristics of false teachers. Uh, among them, I mean, you think about the start of this. I mean, who could be so brash? Who could be so proud? Who could be so arrogant as to masquerade as a teacher of the flock? As one sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to minister to the people of God? And not actually fulfill that calling. That is arrogance. But he says this, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So that further characterizes arrogant speech. Those fleshly desires, and of course, put on those who barely escape. So this word arrogant, this word comes from a word which simply means boastful or swollen. You know, you tell people, don't, com don't, don't give me too many compliments, it'll go to my head. My head will swell. It's a great illustration of pride. It's gone to your head. You were big-headed about this. And so this is what arrogance looks like. First, it refers to words that are too big for what one is talking about. And so they speak out arrogant words. And of course, words, that's all they are. They're words. They're words don't, that really don't have a lot of substance to them. They're certainly not true, or they're filled with 
They're filled with partial truths, but they do not contain the whole clear unvarnished truth. Unmessed with truth. But we know this. It's amazing the effect that words can have. Even if the words have no substance whatsoever, if they're said in a particular fashion, if they're said with confidence, then sometimes we are moved to believe them. Because we care sometimes more about how something is said than what is actually said. But this is the proclamation of this arrogant speech. Think, oh, did you hear him? Did you hear what he said? That was so amazing. That was so moving. That was so new. That was so eloquent. And on and on and on. But what we fail to ask ourselves is, was what he said true? It all goes back to that, friends. Is what this person is saying true or is it not? I know we have a thing for soaring orations, for people who know how to take words and and craft a particularly moving speech. And yet even the Apostle Paul, it was said of him that his speech was contemptible. But what was most important is that he was speaking for the Lord Jesus. He was preaching the Gospel. And that, and that he was bound to teach that clearly. To teach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because he knew that that was sufficient to the task of bringing people into the new covenant. Of calling men everywhere to repent. But there is a contradiction here. His words are swollen, yet they are vain. It's like a balloon just full of Full of air, full of hot air. Vanity speaks of that which is worthless and hollow, like we just said. When, when they speak, their words lack real substance, right? There's no, there's no power behind them. There's no, there's no power unto sanctification. There is, I mean, when we talk about knowledge of Christ, right, we're talking about life changing truth. Truth that the Christian hears and then uses it to grow by. But there is nothing here. It's, 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 it's all size, but it's empty on the inside. No cream filling. No substance. Nothing that will nourish you. And typically, teaching like this is often disjointed. Right? There is something about preaching the Gospel and preaching biblical truth where you're able to, to put these concepts together and make sense out of them because they have the same author. The Holy Spirit has given it, and so it will be internally consistent. It will not be contradictory. And that's something, when it comes to arrogant words, you won't be able to put two and two together. It's just merely words, but without any substance, without any power or authority. And yet, of course, the claim is that there is power, that there is authority, that you can't live without this. Right? Caked with visions of prosperity and blessing and wisdom. But it's all useless. These words are arrogant and useless. And you would think with all that verbosity and eloquence, you would find something redeemable in it. But as Peter says, it's only empty, futile, and useless. And ultimately leads to damnation. Because whatever gospel is being preached, it tries to add to what Christ has done, And if you ever try to add what, to what Christ has done, you've simply taken it away completely. Remember, grace works alone. Grace needs no partners. It needs no help. Just think about this word arrogance for a minute. Because this is a word that's often 
thrown around. These are arrogant words of vanity. How is arrogance expressed? It's expressed in a variety of ways, but I want to highlight some of the ways that um, it, it, it reveals itself today. And keep in mind, arrogance is not just the absence of humility. It's not just the absence of humility. It's, arrogance really is a misplaced confidence. It's confidence when you have no reason to be confident. It's confident for no reason whatsoever. Talk about arrogance because often that is something that Christians are accused of. We are to speak the gospel. We are to preach the truth and teach it confidently. Not with unbelief, not second-guessing what we're saying. No, we, we, the gospel is true. We can be absolutely certain of the claims of Jesus Christ and the apostles. We can be absolutely certain that we hold in our hands the true and complete Word of God. That's not arrogance. That is God-given confidence. And we shouldn't shrink back when we are accused of being arrogant. We can be confident and humble. And that humility comes through in our preaching because we know, first of all, that it's not from us. We are dependent upon God Himself for the source of that revelation, for the, for the truth of the Gospel. And we depend on His strength to even proclaim it. There is nothing fleshly about the Gospel. There is nothing fleshly about the preaching of it. But I digress. How is arrogance expressed? Some of these will be more timeless. Some of them will be more timely. But I think one that really pops out, especially when it comes to false teachers, is this issue of private revelation. Arrogance is expressed in private revelation. We see this, I think, manifested uh, more than any other place in, in health, wealth, prosperity, gospel type of teaching. This sort of, the Lord told me, right? I received a word from the Lord. If I'm reading the Lord right, you know, if I'm getting this right, so there's sort of that caveat, like, you know, I think the Lord is saying this. He is, but we can't really be sure. But I'm going to speak authoritatively anyway. Private revelation. That is, I am privy to some hidden knowledge that you're not. Right? This was Gnosticism primarily in the very early centuries of the New Testament church. But it still rears its ugly head in plenty of ways today. That is, that the teacher knows something that without his intervention, without his tutelage, you would never know this thing. Right? It's something that is extra-biblical. Because we all have access to the Scriptures. And yes, we, to a degree, we all rely on particular teachers. We rely on the faithful exposition of the Word of God. But all of that exposition is bound by what is revealed in Scripture. This private revelation refers to Scripture that is either taken out of context and abused, or things that aren't found in Scripture, period. And yet you can't experience that breakthrough, that next level spirituality and blessing, unless you go to this person who has this secret knowledge. That is arrogance. That is an arrogance that seeks to unseat Christ as high priest and to put yourself in that position so that people rely on you rather than the Lord Himself. Here's another one. I think we, we see it every once in a while, but it's common, is, is an authoritarian style of leadership. Basically, a graceless style of leadership in which the teacher views himself as free from any kind of accountability or inquiry. There's a great illustration on this. It comes from uh, 
comes from book seven in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, my least favorite personally, but you like what you like. And, and the, opening, the opening narrative features a donkey named Puzzle and an ape named Shift. Now, this is, these are the last days of Narnia. And they find basically this, this empty lion skin. And so Shift tells Puzzle, the, the, the donkey, not a very clever donkey, to, to put this lion coat on so he can kind of masquerade as Aslan the Great. And so... Puzzle, as simple as he is, you know, he's second-guessing. He's not sure this is a good idea. And so Shift says this, Don't you start getting ideas into your head, Puzzle, because you know thinking isn't your strong point. We'll make this skin into a fine winter-warm coat for you. Oh, I don't think I'd like that, said the donkey. It would look, I mean, the other beasts might think, that is to say, I shouldn't feel... What are you talking about, said Shift, scratching himself the wrong way up as apes do? Well, I don't think it would be respectful to the great lion, to Aslan himself, if an ass like me went about dressed up in a lion skin, said Puzzle. Now don't stand for arguing, please, said Shift. What does an ass like you know of things of that sort? You know you're no good at thinking, Puzzle, so why don't you let me do your thinking for you? I mean, that is one of the most common characteristics of authoritarian leadership. Let me do your thinking for you, right? I am wiser than you. I know things you don't, so don't ask me any questions. Thinking isn't your strong point. Let me do your thinking for you. See, that is how cults are born. And yet, Scripture paints the opposite picture. Right? We take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are to think things through. Like Isaiah, come, let us reason together. No teacher, no matter how influential, does our thinking for us. That's what's so important about teaching the Scriptures. It's not so much to tell you what to think as it is to teach you how to think. Right? How can you... Read the truth of God's Word and put these things together so that you can obey God's commands by faith, so that you can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just what to think. I'm not doing your thinking for you, but I can point you to the truth of Scripture and say, this is how to frame your thinking. How do we think? I just said it. How we think is that we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That's the framework of Christian mentality. How else do we think? Well, we orient our thinking toward a true foundation. Namely, that we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the treasure, right? And the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? Our, so when it comes to thinking, our starting point is Jesus. right? And the goal of our thinking is also Christ. That He is glorified and known and cherished. But certainly, the minute a teacher comes in and tries to think for you is a dangerous, is a dangerous teacher. Right? We do our own thinking, but we pattern our thinking after what God has revealed in His Word. We're not, again, we're not mindless robots. 
We are to orient deliberately our thinking toward God's Word and only God's Word. See, false teachers can offer the lion's skin, but they cannot offer the lion's heart. This brand of spirituality illustrated by this story of puzzle and shift is only a surface spirituality. You see the lion's skin, you see his mane, but where is the lion's roar? You only have a donkey's bray at this point. But this is an authoritarian style of leadership that takes no question, that never is held accountable, that, does, that, that basically sees, that sees the, the sheep as underlings, that sees the sheep as, as unclean, that can't be bothered by the needs of God's flock. Here's another one. Another popular one is an assault on Scripture. Nearly every, I would say, I think I could say that without qualification, every false teacher will in some sense assault Scripture, whether passively or actively. You know, we go back to the Garden of Eden for that one, Genesis 3, has God indeed said, questioning the substance and validity, even the motivation of what God has clearly spoken. Another great verse from Scripture, Jeremiah 6.16. Again, at this point in time, Judah was dealing with some very serious and sad apostasy and on the verge of judgment. This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Look at this. Very simple, very simple procedure here that we're offered. Ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, and walk on it, right? Walk in it. And you will find rest, right? You will find the rest, the very thing that cannot be found through false teachers. There is no rest, right? It's just mist. It is not water. It evaporates as soon as it appears. But listen to this. But you said, we will not walk in it. See, this is the attitude, the very attitude that says, hath God really said this? Oh, we are to walk in it, friends. We are to walk in the path of God, the path of truth. But that is what is attacked. See, unfortunately, we are prone to attacks on Scripture because of Scripture's ancient, ancient nature. It's from antiquity. But it is the eternal Word of God, and yet it's always being attacked on account of its age. Oh, we need... That, that's passe. That's old. We need to progress. We need to do away with that old religion and find something else that unites us and gives us truth and gives us clarity and gives us wisdom. And yet the Bible stands as the timeless truth of God's Word. And the most arrogant thing we can say is that God has nothing to say. The truly humble servant of the Lord Jesus says, all I care about is what God says. And so I'm going to teach you what God says and nothing besides and nothing more and nothing less. Let's move on in our text regarding this arrogance in view here. These arrogant words of vanity. Okay, So they have a particular impact. right? They're not just... Again, we say they're merely words, 
but they have an impact against unsuspecting folks in the church. It says they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So, they entice. There's that word that Peter has already used, right? The word that illustrates, that is, that's illustrative of the fish hook, right? You dangle it in the water, and that person who is unsuspecting comes up, says, this looks good, this sounds good, I'm going to take a bite, and then before you know it, you're flopping around in the boat, out of the water. They entice by fleshly desires. Okay, Same thing. We've been through this one before as well. Fleshly desire. Desires of the flesh. right? That which appeals to the old man. Talked about the flesh being more than simply the human body. The flesh being more than simply what you were apart from Christ. But the flesh is descriptive of the entire old order. So, so what these false teachers are doing is that they are enticing, they are tempting people to go and latch on to whatever it is that is fading and being overcome by the preaching of the Gospel. You know, We've talked over and over again how Jerusalem seemed to be symbolic of that old order that was fading away, being made obsolete, and eventually would be destroyed. And so it follows that whoever latches onto that will also take part in its destruction. And yet there is an appeal to sensual desires. That's why he says bisensuality. We've remarked time and time again that one of the most uh, outstanding characteristics of a false teacher is sexual immorality, sexual deviancy. They have eyes full of adultery. They're always looking forward to opportunities to take advantage of people, especially the immature. And that's, and that's usually done by sexually immoral behavior. And so the same thing is in view right here. They bait people within the church to entice them by fleshly desires. Immediate satisfaction. And so, lead them away from following Christ. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God. God with your body. See, still in, in Greek teaching at that time was it didn't really matter what you did with your body. It didn't really matter. So do what you want. And those temptations, sadly, became temptations within the body of Christ. And he says, no, what you do with your body matters. Your body will be redeemed. Your body will be resurrected. So honor God as if He will do that. As if He will accomplish that in, in its fullness. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, but we don't want to be caught off guard, especially not by one who is speaking out boastful and arrogant and yet empty words. Church doesn't want to be taken captive by that on any sphere, right? Whether it's this suave politician or an eloquent preacher, we must be on guard and ask ourselves, is the truth being proclaimed, yes or no? And if the truth is being proclaimed, receive it. If not, reject it. Because this comes in many shapes and sizes. The enemy is always looking for an opportunity to subvert the work of the Gospel. So let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 18 again. Who's in view here? Those who barely escape from the ones who live 
in error. So what it looks like here is Peter is identifying who the intended victims are, who, who typically falls prey to these arrogant words. And as we, as we have already observed, this typically is the immature. The immature, those who are unstable souls, as Peter has already remarked. Those are the ones that false teachers seek out to take captive, to lead into temptation. These are the ones who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Who are the ones who live in error? The ones who live in error are those who live in outright unbelief. The ones who live in error are content with the life of error. They, they, they sense no need for God, no need for redemption. They desire to live a completely self-sufficient and self-absorbed kind of life. Those are the ones who live in error. It's descriptive of unbelief. Consider Romans 1.27. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Right? Error, that which is categorically opposed to the truth of God. That which is descriptive of the unbelieving life. Even Paul says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. You notice error and impurity go hand in hand. If you are in error, if you, will, if you are in unbelief, then impurity, sensuality, inevitably walks side by side. In 1 John 4, 6, also warning. Remember, a lot of this false teaching going around is infiltrating several different churches and, and the apostles across the board comment on them and warn the churches. 1 John 4, 6, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Right, The spirit of unbelief. The spirit of all that opposes the truth of the Gospel. That which is opposed to the Holy Spirit. So who are the ones who barely escape from error? The ones who barely escape from error, again, this, uh, this, this fits appropriately with Peter's earlier description of unstable souls. Now, depending on the translation you have, it may, it may refer to, to just. right? So if you look at this, it says, those who barely escape. right? So not barely escape as in narrowly escape, but the better understanding is that they have recently escaped. They've recently escaped. And remember, even if you were not truly born again, if you found your way into a local church and you did life with them, you spent time amongst them, right? you kind of were a, a part of the community, yeah, you reaped certain benefits. You escaped error. Because you're not living out in the world. You're not exposed to all of that error, all that unbelief, all that doctrine counter to the Gospel all the time. No, you're, you're sheltered for a while if you are spending, spending a good amount of time with the people of God. You are going to reap particular benefits and blessings even if you are in an unregenerate state. Let's face it, the church is just a better place to be. And yet this is what he's talking about. The, the, the immature, perhaps those who have made a confession, those who have been recently baptized, so it's not that it is that they have just narrowly escaped it, but just but recently. They haven't been in the church a long time. They're perhaps not doctrinally grounded. They're not mature. See, they have not yet, as Peter instructs, they have not grown in true grace. They haven't grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so a counterfeit gospel is quickly introduced so that rather than standing on the rock of grace, they stand in the quicksand of the flesh. This is why maturity, friends, is so important. We should never be content remaining in immaturity. To think that the deep things of God are left to the theologians. What am I going to say to that? We're all theologians. We all handle theology. We as Christians are to consider to consider the Word of God in its entirety. Everyone is called to grow. Not to be stagnant. Not to remain immature. immature not to be carnal. But to grow. To more and more resemble Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians. In chapter 14, verse 20, he tells them outright, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Right? Be immature when it comes to wickedness, that past life, but in your thinking. right? Think like a mature man. I think it was, I think it was Lewis, I'm paraphrasing, who said, um, have a child's heart, but a grown-up's mind. Mature in your thinking. In Ephesians 4.14, we've already read that, right? But to no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Right? Not to be wishy-washy, but to be mature in the faith, to know what the Scriptures teach concerning the person and work of Christ, and to grow in that. But note this, the second part of this passage that draws our attention about you know the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but listen to this. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So don't miss that. We are to grow. This is, this is commanded for every believer. But how? Well, it says this, by speaking the truth in love. Now keep in mind, not speaking the truth nicely or pleasantly, but in love. That is, that in, when we speak, there is a clear desire and goal and aim for your fellow believer in Christ to be mature and to grow in the Lord. You are pursuing His highest good by speaking the truth, which is precisely the opposite of what these false teachers are doing. They are proclaiming big, brash, arrogant words so that they can take advantage of the flock. right? So that they can get, whereas... True believers, we are to give. Get out of, give out of the infinite resources of biblical and gospel truth. And you think about the Corinthians and what they were going through, going back, going back to them. This was something that was heavy on Paul's heart. Even in the second letter, he, he addresses the same concern. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Right? That's always a concern on our hearts. Right? There is, even, though, even though we desire to deepen our faith, right? to, to be able to understand the whole counsel of God, it is founded on the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Right? Christ is the very foundation of the Gospel we believe and proclaim. And we don't want to be deceived by some by some peddler who comes in and promises us great things, miraculous things not grounded in Scripture. And so that should be our concern for one another that we're not led astray. 
And we can stop there for today, but consider these things. I want us to consider these things because what Peter warns us against stands so, so boldly in front of how we understand the Gospel. Right? This is, this is not just a counterfeit teacher. What we are seeing here, guys, are counterfeit messiahs. I mean, even things we've covered already. The springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Seriously? When we have Christ, the fountain of living water, who provides everything we need. And that's, and that's our call today. right? Repent from listening to these wannabes and go to the true source of all life and truth and refreshment. And that is Christ Himself. Instead of arrogant words of vanity, what are the words that Christ speaks to us? He says of His own words, they are true and they are life. Right? Abide in Me. Abide in what I have said to you. Abide in the truth. Believe in Me. Believe in Him and live. Repent of seeking out words that sound good and entice you that are really vain and empty, look for true substance in Christ Himself. That is a challenge to us. Again, we could keep going, but let's stop here and consider these things this morning together. And look to Christ alone as the source of truth. Look to Christ alone as the, the source of refreshment. And not deviate and fall victim to every preacher who comes along promising these great things and yet always leaves you broken and destitute and miserable and thirsty when all we have to do is look to Christ who tells us to come to Him and to receive life abundantly. So, based on that, let's uh, carry that to the Lord in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for uh, your love and goodness to us. We thank You for the words of Scripture and how they're so clear and, and, uh, and so precious to us. Lord, we can be thankful that even though we see false teachers abdicate, step down, not fulfill their responsibilities to the flock, we can look to Christ as our true Shepherd who always stands guard, who is rather than being a hired hand, has instead laid down His life for the sheep, who is always our good and faithful Teacher. Lord, rather than arrogant, than arrogance, He humbled Himself, took on human flesh, became like a, like a servant, became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And that we can find the ultimate example of humility in Him. And to... Repent from our own pride. Repent from our own self-reliance. Repent from even our own works. The works we use to claim personal merit before You when it's all of grace. So Lord, please help us to meditate on the good news of Your Son, of His sacrifice, the good news of His resurrection, and even the good news of His reign and kingdom. That we by faith in Him alone, can experience all the goodness and blessings of that kingdom. Oh Lord, renew our minds. Help us 
Think our thoughts after You. Help us take every thought captive. Lord, help us to be on guard against anyone who would come in our midst and try to do our thinking for us. When all we desire, Lord, is to is to think on You. So I pray, Lord, that as, even though we got through very little of this text, that it would do its work in our hearts and minds this morning, and that You will be glorified through it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.